Be smart with your money. That's what people tell us. Right? Be smart with your money. Lots of people out there with all kinds of advice on how to be smart with your money. Right? Use these coupon codes. You know, you use these discount codes. Which day of the week is it that you buy airplane tickets? Right? Which one's better than the other ones? Right? How to pay down your credit card debt. How do you do that properly? Um, Roth IRA, traditional IRA, low-cost index funds, right? All these possibilities, all these advice, lots of money advice out there, how to be smart with your money. That makes sense because money is important. Money plays a big part in our lives, which is why it, it should not surprise you that Jesus actually has a lot to say about money. In fact, one time he actually gave advice on how to be smart with your money. But okay, here's the thing. When I actually tell you what Jesus says about being smart with your money, you're going to be like, no way. Jesus couldn't have probably said that because <laughs> it sounds completely wrong. It sounds completely unethical. But before we go there, uh, let me introduce myself. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team. I want to greet those of you who are here and all the sites and venues and jo- people joining us uh, online and uh, through our podcast. Um, we are in a sermon series called Summer Camp. It's a series that's focused on spiritual practices. The idea is that we cooperate with activities that, that, that work with the Holy Spirit to help deepen our faith in God and to transform us into his likeness for the sake of the mission. These two things right here, they are at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. So the idea of the summer camp is that we're kind of like camp counselors where we come up here and, and we introduce to you a particular spiritual practice. And, and our goal is to encourage you to adopt and try out that spiritual practice. Well, today, the spiritual practice I'm encouraging you to adopt is be smart with your money. Now, some of you are thinking, being smart with your money is a spiritual practice. What does that even mean? How could that possibly be, right? I mean, we get prayer. That makes sense. Reading the Bible makes sense. Serving other people makes sense. But spiritual practice, as, as being smart with your money is a spiritual practice? I mean, what the heck is that, right? And then some of you, it may be your very first time here. And you're like, oh, no, they're talking about money. How can I sneak out of here without being seen? So let me just kind of say, hey, if you have questions, just, okay, just hang with me, okay? because I don't think you want to miss what Jesus has to say about this. If you have your Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Uh, Just a bit of a heads up. Jesus liked to teach using short little stories. These short little stories are called parables. And and one of the, the parables we're looking at is one of the most notoriously difficult to understand. Yeah. Some people are really uncomfortable with this parable because they think Jesus is teaching something very horrible teaching something totally unethical. So why are we reading this parable? Because I think that if we actually read this parable right, we actually dive into it and wrestle with it and really get it into our lives, it's a game changer, folks. It's a game changer. It will transform your relationship with money for good. All right. But it is a difficult parable, so stick with me, okay? Hang with me. I'm going to walk through it very slowly. So here goes. Luke 16, verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. So the story starts with two major characters. The main character is the master, the, the landowner. Now, he's a rich guy. Okay, in the first century, he owns a lot of land 
and people are you know, working the land and producing all kinds of crops. And we know he's a very rich man because he needs a manager to run his estate. The second main character is the manager, and what we learn about him is that he's not very good at his job. <laughs> he's incompetent. He is wasting resources, right? He's wasting resources. So the story begins with a meeting. The manager, the manager gets called in, and, and, the, and, the, and the master said, uh, you're fired. You're fired. You have, I don't know, I'll give you a couple weeks. Get your books in order. Prepare for the next person because you are done, right? You're done. That's how the story starts. A manager gets fired and he has a, a few days left before he is out of his job. So the question here is, what does the manager do, right? Next verse. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? Hey, <laughs> my master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Okay, so the manager's in a pickle, right? He's, he's lost his job and so he starts thinking, he starts scheming, he starts planning. He's going through his option. Option one, menial labor. And he's like, no, 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 I'm too good for that. All right, um, how about living off the charity of others? Oh, no, 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 I can't do that. Too much pride for that. No, here's what I need to come up with. I need to do something that will cause other people, and we're talking really about rich people, that will cause rich people to happily, to voluntarily open up their homes to me so I can live on their estate and they will take care of me. Okay? I need to come up with something that will accomplish that. Okay? And so I know what I'll do. I know what I'll do. So what does the manager do? Next verse. So the manager called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, hey, how much do you owe my master? Oh, 900 gallons of olive oil, he, he replied. The manager told him, hey, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, hey, how much do you owe? Do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. Well, he told him, take your bill and make it 800. Let's make sure we're clear on what's happening here. Okay, you see, the manager calls in his master's debtors, people who owe his master lots of stuff. Now, the, the numbers given here are important, okay? The numbers given here are important. 900 gallons of olive oil, that's the annual production of a very large olive grove in the first century. A thousand bushels of wheat, that's about the production, annual production of a 200-acre farm, which is like 20 times the average family plot. In other words, these are people, and it's not just two people. I mean, he called in all the debtors, right? This is just two examples. These are people who are rich. These are people who are elite in the region. They are able to borrow and pay back this amount, okay? And the manager is happy about that because he wants to make friends with these rich people. So what does he do? Now, biblical scholars are arguing about this, and I don't know why. The, the most straightforward reading is this. While he still has his authority as the manager, he has, what, a few days left? He uses that authority to cancel significant portions of their debt. Right? First guy, 50%. Second guy, 20%. Gone. Why does he do that? Because those rich guys are now his friends. Right? He just did them a huge favor. They owe him. 
When he's out of a job, they're going to take him in and put him in their estate and take care of him because he just saved them a lot of money. As this entire deal here is done with a bit of a handshake and a wink, wink, you know, right? right? I take care of you. You take care of me, right? So that's what's going on. And by the way, this is the reason why uh, companies today, sometimes, you know, when you get fired, they escort you out of the building. <laughs> they lock you out of the computer system. So you can't do any mischief. This is the reason why, right? The, the problem here, of course, is back then, they didn't have the system. So the manager took advantage. He's like, hmm, I can do this. And so he goes from incompetence to blatant corruption. We're all clear on that. What he did is wrong. It's, it's really wrong. He is a lying, conniving scoundrel. So what should happen to him? See, we have a problem. And it's the way we read the Bible. You see, most of us come out of a culture that reads the Bible a certain way. Our culture reads the Bible as teaching us to do good and to avoid sin. By the way, that's not what the Bible is about. Okay? But that's how we approach the Bible. Which means when we see a story in the Bible, we expect it to kind of reinforce this basic uh, morality. So do good and get rewarded, do evil and you get punished, right? That's how we think. So when we hear about a story about this, you know, dishonest manager, what do we expect to happen? We expect that he gets caught, right? We expect that he gets busted and something bad happens to him. That's how we read the story. Well, that is not how Jesus ends the story. Not even close. Next verse. The master, the owner, your first guy, commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. What? <laughs> okay, okay. So let's get this straight. Okay, the word commended there in Greek, it's um, uh, epineo. It means to praise. It means to express one's admiration for or approval of a person. So the master calls in the manager and he says, you know, I saw what you did there. Man, really well done. I'm impressed with you. I admire you for what you've done. And we're like, wait, 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 what? Wait, 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 that can't be right. He just stole a bunch of your money. Why is he doing that? What Jesus tells you. Because the manager had acted shrewdly. The master said, I admire you because you are smart. Well done. Good job. That's how the story ends. <laughs> okay? Nothing bad happens to the manager. Nothing bad happens. It ends with the master going, well done. I'm impressed. Whew. How are you guys doing? Crazy story, right? This is what I love about Jesus. Um, he tells stories that make us go, what? <laughs> okay. So, okay, what I want to do here is let's get on the same page about this. Okay. Jesus is not telling you to do what this manager did. Can we just be clear on that? He is not telling you to cheat people and to rob people. That is not what's happening. I know I should have to say this, but I want to make sure that you don't walk out here going, oh, I heard a parable about Jesus, you know, proving people who rob people and steal from people. That's not what's going on here, okay? Without a doubt, this manager is a thief. He's a conniving person. He is conceited. He is a liar. He is everything wrong. But Jesus says, you can learn from him. 
This guy's a piece of work. But there's something about him I want you to pick up. And what is that something? Jesus tells us. Second part of this verse. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Let's just kind of you know, define some terms here. People of the world are the people who are not on God's side. They're, they're opposed to God. And then people of the light are the people who follow God. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, look, those people who are against God, they're, they, they're, they, they, they are shrewd. They're more shrewd than people of the light. Now, what, is, what does shrewd mean? The Greek word here is phronimos. And it's a very good word. It means to be wise. It means to be thoughtful. It means to be smart about things. And Jesus says the people of this world who are not on God's side, they are smart about things. And God's people, you should learn from them. Well, what do we learn, Jesus? What do we learn? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to be smart about things? Jesus tells us, next verse. And this is the critical verse, okay? So pay attention. This is not Jesus talking now. Jesus, I tell you, I tell you, every one of you, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What does that mean? Okay, let's start with this. The key to understanding this verse is you have to begin by recognizing that Jesus is referring back to the story of the manager, right? The manager is the one who's using wealth that's going to be gone soon to make friends for himself so that they will welcome him into their homes. This is a reference to the story story of the manager. So here is the key to interpreting this parable. What Jesus is saying is every one of us, we're like the manager. Whether you know it or not, whether you realize it or not, we're all in the same position as the manager in the story. How so? When we get to a certain age, we start to control a certain amount of money or possessions. Even when we're young, you get allowances, your relatives give you a gift, or you get a part-time job. When I was 13, I had a paper route. If you don't know what that is, ask your parents or your grandparents. I worked all the way through middle school, through high school. I had access to money. I had control of money. And I know some of us here were like, okay, I, I have net, you know, negative net worth. Yeah, but even then, you have some control over some wealth. Beat up old cars, some used furniture, something. And then for some of us here, we have access and control of significant wealth. Houses, properties, homes, businesses, investment portfolios. And what Jesus is saying is, look, You're not owners of your wealth. You are managers. Why does he say that? Well, I own a plot of land in Middleton. We have a house on it. The law tells me I own that. But do I really own that land in any real sense of the word? The land was there long before I, I came along, and it will be there long after I'm gone. I didn't create it and I can't keep it even if I wanted to. None of us own land in any real sense of the word. We don't create land, and we can't keep land. In fact, we can't really keep any physical possession, right? You can destroy things you own. You can throw them away. You can give them away, but you can't keep it. A time is coming 
when you will lose control of what you have. You have it for a few decades, and then you are gone. So the first thing we learn from this parable is that we're managers, not owners. But more than that, we're managers with very lousy job security because we're managers who have already been fired. Sometime between now and a future date, I have control over my wealth right now. After that, I lose it. Okay? That's gone. It's gone. That time is coming for every single one of us. We're all just like the manager. We have control right now, but not for long. So what should we do? Well, Jesus says, be like the manager. You see, the manager, he's smart. He knows he's about to lose control of his wealth. He knows he's about to lose control of the estate. So what does he do? He's like, okay, that, that thing is coming. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go buy friends. And they will then welcome me into eternal dwellings, well, into, into their homes. And Jesus says, man, that guy's smart. Okay, that guy's smart. Okay? Do what he does. Be smart like him. Make friends. Use your money to build friends, build relationships. Why? Because the only thing you take with you are other people. Think about your most prized possessions, your home, your car, I don't know, your electric guitar, maybe, you know, the Brett Favre signed autographed football. None of that is going with you. Do you understand that? None of that is going with you. The only thing going with you are other people. So Jesus says, man, be smart. Use your business sense. Use what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. Use what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. Use your money to bring people into the kingdom of God. Help them deepen their faith in God. And these people, they're going to be there to welcome you into eternal dwellings. That's being smart with your money. When you convert what is passing away into something that's eternal, that's being smart with your money. That's what Jesus says. He has more. He has more. Jesus says, when you get really smart with money, when you start being strategic about bringing people into the kingdom, not only are there people who are going to be welcoming you into the kingdom, something else happens to you in the here and now. Something happens right now, okay? Verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with with, with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Jesus is saying, hey, be smart with your money. And we will, you will be offered the chance for, for true riches and property of your own. Okay? So, first question. What are these things? What are true riches? What a property of your own mean? I mean like, like, what is Jesus offering? What is Jesus promising? Well, look, 
that's a bit of a rabbit trail. If we start that, we'll be looking at Bible passages all day, okay? So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to tell you what I think. And if you disagree or you have questions, come talk to me afterwards. But in my reading of the Bible, when Jesus talked about true riches, when he talked about property of your own, what he's saying is this. True riches refer to our transformation into God's likeness. When we become like God and gain his character, that's true riches, which immediately gets us into a basic problem, which is we don't think of becoming like God as any kind of riches at all, right? I mean, the idea of like, being like Christ-like, developing a Christ-like character, you know, fruit of the Spirit, all of that sounds like what? Sounds like religious chore, right? Sounds like things we have to do. Sounds like an obligation. But that's not how the Bible sees it. The Bible's attitude is, you don't have to be like God. You get to be like God. In 1991, Gatorade came out with this ad campaign uh, focused on Michael Jordan. Um, the tagline is, be like Mike. And there's this really cool commercial jingle, like, you know, I'll be like Mike. I want to be like Mike. I want to be like Mike. You know, like, you just people sing that song, right? It's, it's awesome. And, and frankly, back then, I totally wanted to be like Mike. I wanted to play basketball like Michael Jordan. And even today, if you tell me, is there something I can do so I can dunk like Michael Jordan? Like with my tongue hanging out, you know? You know, like, I totally do it. Okay, immediately, I totally do it, okay? And I'm telling you, you have people you admire. There are people you want to emulate. And if somebody told you, hey, there's something you can do so you can actually emulate that person, you'd go for it. Well, the Bible says, who is Michael Jordan? You get to be like God. As the greatest being in the universe, the greatest gift God can offer us is a life that reflects his. Imagine that. Imagine having God's understanding of the universe, under his understanding of physics. Those of you into science, imagine that. Imagine having God's creativity, his sense of artistry and beauty. Those of you into art, those of you who are creative, imagine that. Imagine his understanding of human society, human motivation. Imagine having his sense of self-confidence, his inner peace, his endurance, his sense of justice, his sense of kindness, his sense of love. Imagine all of that. That's what Jesus is offering us. And that's what the series has been about. Cooperating with the Holy Spirit so that he can pour into us true riches, transformation into God-likeness. And Jesus says, if you are smart with money, you open yourself up to be given true riches. You open yourself up to transformation, which raises the obvious question. Why are these two things connected, right? Why do you have to be smart with money to be open to transformation? Well, Jesus explains. Next verse. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We tend to think money is neutral. It is not. Money is not neutral. You see, the story of the Bible teaches that, that we live in a world that's in conflict. God is trying to establish his kingdom on this world. 
And there is a religious power, spiritual power that's in opposition, in rebellion against God. And we're not neutral parties in this. We either serve God or we serve the rebellious powers. And for the rebellious powers, they have a powerful, powerful tool. Money. Money binds us to this broken world because money takes the place of God in our lives. Money gives us the illusion of status. We feel important when we have money. Money gives us the illusion of security. We feel safe when we have money. Money gives us the illusion of control. We feel powerful when we have money. Status, security, power. All things that God is supposed to be in our lives. Money takes that place. Money roots us to this world. It is a power. It has agency, which is why if you don't have a plan for your money, your money has a plan for you. If you don't control your money, your money controls you. If you don't think through how to spend your money, then your money, without you knowing it, is going to shape your identity. It's going to give you a sense of security, a sense of control. And what that does is it roots you, it binds you to this broken world so that you're no longer able to experience the transformational power of the Holy Spirit. You are blocked off. Money is power. Money is a power. Money wants to master you if you let it. And so Jesus says, you need to master money. Because if you can't control money, who will give you true riches? If you can't control money that's, that's here for a few decades and it's gone in your life, who's going to give you eternal riches? That's money advice from Jesus Christ. Now, what did we learn today? Let's just go over it. First thing, be smart with your money. Okay? Think about it. Plan. Use your mind. Use your head. Be smart with your money. But here's the thing. Use your mind and think about money through the lens of what Jesus teaches, which is use what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. Convert what is going away to something that is eternal. That's smart. Use your money to bring people into the kingdom of God. Use your money to deepen the faith of people in the kingdom of God, and they will be there to welcome you. In, into eternal dwellings. That's being smart with your money. Next level up. If you don't have a plan for your money, then your money has a plan for you. If you don't control your money, then your money controls you. And here's the thing. When you have a plan for your money, what it does is it breaks you away from the power and the control of, the re of this rebellious world and you, oh, you're open up to the power of the Holy Spirit who can give you transformation, which is true riches, according to the Bible. So being smart with money is actually a spiritual practice. And that is the practice I want to encourage you to take on today. Now, I need to address the elephant in the room right now. Because some of you are thinking, okay, 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 I know where this is going, all right? This is going, Charles is going to ask us to give to Blackout Church. Now, I got to tell you, okay, when I come up here, 
I experienced a strong temptation to not talk about giving to Blackhawk Church. And here's why. Because we all know, we all know about the stereotype of churches that are always asking for money. And so we try very hard not to be that church. We bend over backwards trying to not be that church. But when we try so hard to avoid a stereotype, here's what happens. We end up missing out on what the Bible actually teaches about money. Okay? So here's what the Bible teaches. Two things. Number one, when we ask you to give to Blackout Church, it's for your benefit. It really is. I mean, it sounds so self-serving, right? But it actually is. And I, as a teacher, I have to believe that because the Bible teaches us, the parable tells us this, and so many of the other passages in the Bible teaches exactly the same thing, which means when I'm up here and I avoid talking about money, I'm not doing you any favors. When you put your money into the kingdom, when you put your money, investing it, and bringing people in and deepening their faith, you you are breaking away from the domination of the powers of this world, and you open yourself to transformation. And I want that for you. The second thing the Bible's really clear about, the first place you give your money is your local church. Now, some of you, you're, if you're, you're here for the very first time, welcome to Blackhawk Church. Please ignore what I'm saying for the next five minutes. <laughs> Just ignore it. And some of you, you're a guest here and you're visiting, or, or you're watching online, and you have a, a, a different church that you call home, consider start giving with your home church. The people I'm talking to are Blackhawkers. If you consider Blackhawk your spiritual home, you should invest money here. Two reasons. Number one, we know we're not a perfect church. Far from it. But this is a church where people are coming to know Jesus. This is a church where people are are, are entering into the kingdom of God and people's faith are being deepened here, which means you're getting good return for your money. Reason number two, you're being spiritually nourished here. You're finding community here. And the people here, the Bible says, they're your family. So, Take care of your family. I know there are a lot of places to give. Okay? A lot of places to give. But what the Bible says is the church is the starting point. The church is the starting point where you give. It is the primary place where you're called to give. And so many of you are already doing that. So many of you are already doing that. That's so great. Last month, uh, at the end of June, end of our fiscal year, we were facing a significant shortfall. And so Pastor Matt came up here, and he, and, and he called for the church family to step up. And many of you did just that. You gave an additional gift. You, you, you gave sacrificially. And it made a huge difference, folks. We had the largest giving June in the history of Blackhawk Church. It made a huge difference. So first thing I want to say is for those of you who are giving regularly at Blackhawk Church, thank you, thank you, thank you. We are, we are so grateful that you're stepping up to take care of your church home. You're taking care of your family. But I also want to say, hey, it's actually good for you. That's what the Bible says. It's good for you. You are breaking away from the power of this dark world, and you're moving, and you're opening yourself up to the transformational power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know some of you are thinking right now, okay, Charles, I I would love to give. But man, it's really bad time right now. God, student loan debt, credit card debt, losing my job, so many kids all kinds of stuff going on, okay? It's really hard right now. 
And I get it. Which is why the last thing we're going to learn today, it's not the amount. It's the practice. 20 years ago, I was a graduate student at University of Wisconsin. And here I need to clarify, I was a grad student in humanities. Okay, those of you who know, right? Grad students in STEM, they get funding. Most of them do anyway. <laughs> Graduate students in humanities, we have to uh, either live off student loans or we have to scrounge around for TA positions. We just had our second kid. Serena was teaching part-time at MMSD. Um, we had, I don't know, a big hole in our budget on a monthly basis that was covered by credit card. I had student loan from my undergrad days and from my seminary days. We were attending Blackhawk at the time. And Pastor, Pastor Chris came up here, and he was teaching about giving. And he said, it's not about the money, it's about the heart. So not about the amount, actually, not about the heart. And so, so Serena and I were like, okay, it's not about the amount. Okay, let's do it. So we sat down, and we actually looked at our spending and money coming in, and we said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give 1% of our net income, okay, 1%. So we took, we, we created this account in our church, in, in, our, in our bank, it's called donations. And every time a paycheck came in, we took 1% and put it into that account. I tell you, there wasn't much in it. <laughs> there was so little in it, we decided not to give on a monthly basis. We decided to give once a year, you know, to save writing all those checks, because those checks cost money. <laughs> so, um, so what happened was, for a number of years, every Thanksgiving, we wrote a check that pretty much emptied out our donations account, and we gave it to the church. That's what we did. But here's the key. We kept up with that practice. Every year, we sit down and we talk about our finances. We work through what's coming in, what's going out, what are our resources, how, how is our life changing? And we adjusted the percentage based on our life changes. So, so when I finally graduated, finally graduated, and got a job, we changed the percentage. When we paid off my student loan, we changed the percentage. When we, we paid off a credit card, we changed the percentage. And what happened was we started giving not just to Blackhawks, we started giving to other people and other institutions outside of Blackhawk. And guess what? We still do this. Every year, we sit down and we figure things out. We make a plan to give because if you don't have a plan for your money, your money has a plan for you. Now, People always ask me, okay, is 10% the right number? And I, I always say, hey, don't fixate on the number. Some of us right now, giving 1% would involve significant sacrifices. And for some of us right now, 30, 40% would not crimp your style. So don't start with a number. Go through the process. Okay? If you're single by yourself, work that through. If you're married with your spouse, Work that through. How much is coming in? How much is going out? What are the priorities? Make a plan that reflect what Jesus says about being smart with money. Use what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. Convert what is passing away into what is eternal. Bring people into the kingdom deepen their faith in God, and they will be there to welcome you into eternal dwellings. Then furthermore, you break away, you break the power of money in your life. You're no longer bound and tied to this broken world. And you allow the Holy Spirit to come in and transform you and give you true riches, which is the character of God. That's smart money. Let me pray for us.
Father, Father, I just want to confess money is such a hard topic for us. It's hard to think about money. There's, it's tied up in so many different things in our lives, so much anxiety and fear and, 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 and uncertainty. It's tied up with money, and money plays such a big role in our lives. And, and so, Father, what I'm asking for right now is your Holy Spirit to come in and, and help us think through this, help us to be really rational, help us think and act on what we know to be true that the money is going away and the people last forever. And help us to live that way. Help us to invest that way. We want to experience you. We want to be like you. <laughs> I don't know if you can dunk Jesus, but I want to be like you. So help us, Father, in our weakness. Help us be smart with our money. And she said, we pray. Amen.